Amen. Why don't you guys uh, bow with me and let's pray. God, it is great to worship you here this morning, here at Shea and at Cactus Northridge Chapel, and certainly all of us joining online. I pray, Father, that as we dive into this new series today, where we're taking a biblical look at things that we all deal with, this battle within, the things that seem to trip us up and, and get the best of us, I pray, Father, that you would give us more than anything today hope and, Lord, even power and victory as we take an honest look at things like disappointment and fear and shame and the other things we're going to embark on over the next month and a half here at our church. Lord, at the end of the day, we know this is your church. We know that, that Jesus is the one who reigns in our lives amidst all of our fall and the sin and the muck that tends to mess things up. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word and give us hope. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So here's a really good place to start our series off on, and, and it's going to seem weird to some of you, but just go with me on this. Over the last 2,000 years, there has not been one generation, not one, in which there is not a contingency of people who deeply believed that Jesus was going to return in their day and age. Let me repeat that. There hasn't been a generation since Jesus walked this earth, that, that there were some people that, didn't, that said Jesus is going to return in our day and age. Never mind the fact that some of Jesus's very last words were, and I quote, it is not for you to know the times or seasons of his return. So he's essentially saying, don't try to guess, just always be ready, because it could be at any time. Nevertheless, there still have been tons of people who have been absolutely convinced, even in our day and age, that Jesus was going to return in their generation, and some have even attempted to declare precisely when. One of the most famous of these occurred about 180 years ago here in America, and it involved a man by the name of William Miller. He was not a bad guy at all. In fact, he was a really good guy. He was a captain in the War of 1812. He hailed from Vermont, the town of Poultney, Vermont. And he was a sheriff. He was the justice of the peace. He was all around a good guy. And early in his adulthood, he became a follower of Jesus, a Christian, having been raised in a very nominal religious home. Some of you get that. And he became a serious student of the Bible. And as he started to study the Bible early on in his adult life, he figured, he sincerely believed after about two years of this that he had figured out the entire end times scenario. And bouncing heavily off of one verse in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, which says, and I quote, unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Miller had this logic behind that verse. He took the cleansing of the sanctuary to be synonymous with the end of the age, Jesus' return, and then he took the 2,300 days to be synonymous with 2,300 years. So two rather big leaps right there. And then agreeing with a pastor friend of his that this all must have been written around 457 B.C., Miller simply did the math, 2300 years on a 457 BC, and targeted the date 1843 as the date that Jesus would return. It was about 25 years before that time that Miller figured all of this out in the early 1800s. 
And Miller, again, was a humble guy. He didn't want big press. He just wanted to figure out God's plan on earth. And so for about 10 years, he kept all of this quiet. But as time went on, as he started to share this with other people, things began to snowball. And then he decided he needed to let loose on American culture. And so two things happened, two events happened that propelled him into the national spotlight. The first was that he wrote a book. He published a book titled, and I quote, Evidence from Scripture and History of the Second Coming of Christ about the year 1843. They didn't have snazzy titles back then to books, but that was the title of his book. And though it wasn't snazzy, that title would have caught your eye, right? Like if I wrote a book saying Jesus is coming back uh, sometime around 2028, you'd probably read that book. And so he wrote that book, 1843, and a lot of people started to read it. The second thing that propelled him in the national spotlight is that a couple of large church pastors, you gotta really beware of large church pastors, uh, in Boston, they, they, they got word of what he was talking about, they read the book, and they started to promote it. And so by the time that 1843 was nearing, watch this, Miller was delivering close to 600 lectures a year, and all told, more than 50,000 people believed him, and as many as a million others were very curious and expectant. And as you and I already know, 1843 came and went, Jesus did not return physically, the world did not end, and tragically, this false prediction left thousands of people disillusioned, confused, and disappointed, Miller himself dying just a few years later, kind of a shameful wreck. In church history circles, this is known, and I kid you not, as the great disappointment. The great disappointment. You can Google it when you get home today. Just Google great disappointment and the first thing they'll come up is a wiki page on Miller. Thousands of good-hearted people full of hope and expecting something monumental, many of them making significant lifestyle changes to their lives, only to have their hopes dashed when the expectation proved entirely false. The great disappointment. You know, as I thought about that this this week, I thought, I, I'm betting that you have a great disappointment in your life as well. Hopefully it's not over the end times. We can set you straight on that one. But the reality is, is that you living life probably have your own version somewhere along the way of a great disappointment. That if you and I were having a cup of coffee, you could tell me of a profound time. Maybe it's going on right now in which you're disappointed in some aspect of life. Maybe your marriage has not turned out like you thought it would. And that's a constant source of disappointment for you. Or maybe it's your job, that your job is something that you had high expectations for and it just hasn't turned out like you thought it would. And you're left with that every day. And I don't mean to step on toes, but maybe for some of us, it's our kids for some of you here today, you had great expectations for what your children would turn out like, loving and responsible. And now they are adult versions of anything but. It's a constant source of disappointment. Still for others of us, there's a tragedy in our lives that we've experienced that have left us uh, disappointed. Maybe abuse from someone that we trusted or the loss of a loved one way too early or a dream that was just shattered by unforeseen circumstances or maybe even choices that we made that were dumb and stupid choices, but now we're living in a state of disappointment. 
or maybe even a worldwide pandemic that took you off guard and has now left you in a state of disappointment. And probably most tragic, if we could be honest here today, and you can, this is church, there are some of us who came in here today and at Cactus Northridge Chapel and those of you watching online who are significantly disappointed in God. You thought God was this way. You, you thought he should do this in your life and he hasn't come through and that has left you spiritually disappointed in your walk with God. It's okay. Here's the deal, folks. In 40 years of walking with Jesus and 30 plus years of being a pastor, I have yet to meet anyone Christian or non-Christian alike, religious or irreligious, who does not have some form of disappointment, many of us might even label it a great disappointment. <laughs> like Jacob in the Old Testament, after wrestling with God, who walked around with a limp, a wound for the rest of his life. We're the walking wounded today. And it all goes back to disappointment. And before you feel embarrassed or shamed that we're talking about this today, please realize this, we're in good stead. I don't know a lot about this fallen world of ours, but I do know one thing, the Bible. And as I've read this book front to cover on numerous occasions, here's one thing I can tell you, it's a book filled with disappointment. It's a book in which normal people like you and I who pined and salivated after God experience profound disappointment in their lives. It's right on page one and two. Adam and Eve, profound disappointment. Their kids, Cain and Abel, disappointment. And then you got Abraham and Sarah, they had disappointment. And then their offspring, Isaac and Jacob, their grandson, he had disappointment. And then you read on from Noah to Moses to Saul to David, to Solomon to Jeremiah to Nehemiah to Esther. There wasn't one New Testament apostle that didn't have some profound disappointment in their lives, even in Jesus. I'm telling you, I can't find one biblical character who didn't experience some form of disappointment in this fallen world of ours. You and I know this. Disappointment is a very real part of living in a fallen world. And when you finally drill down on precisely what disappointment is, it makes sense. It's one of those aha moments, if there ever was one, as to why you and I experience this so often. Because here's the dictionary definition of disappointment that everybody agrees on, even if it's the Bible's definition, and that is that it's a failure to meet one's expectations. That's what disappointment is, a failure to meet one's expectations. So disappointment occurs for you and me when we have an expectation of what and how our lives should be and that expectation is not met or doesn't come to fruition. I was thinking about it this week. I thought, you know, probably one of the, the best ways to get in touch with disappointment if you're not in touch with it right now based on what you're going through is to just think back to your earliest experience of disappointment. Think back to the earliest time that you can remember where you expected something to be a certain way and it wasn't. And I'm smiling because for most of us, those are gonna be rather simple, albeit rather profound stories. So I thought about my own life this week. I thought, you know, I was six years old. First time I can remember being profoundly disappointed. I was in kindergarten going into first grade and uh, I had been given a basketball just the week before for my sixth birthday. Now, I know. 
a basketball, really, but we had high hopes for my sports career. And so I was given this basketball and I was all excited to go to show and tell, remember that in, in elementary school, and, and show it to all the other kids. And I can remember walking to school that day. This was back in the days where parents didn't, they weren't worried about their kids walking to school. And I walked to school and I had show and tell. and It was a great experience. And I was walking home. A couple of bullies came up on me. They must have been in first or second grade. And these bullies came up on me and they grabbed my basketball and started to play keep away with it. And these were kind of nasty bullies because at one point they saw a car driving by and they threw the ball right in front of the car. And you guessed it, the car ran it over and it popped and there's my ball dead, like roadkill in the, in the road there. And so I went over and I picked up my ball and I was obviously very disappointed and dejected. And as these kids ran away, I had one thought and one thought only that gave me immense hope. And that is that it wasn't my fault this happened. It was a birthday gift just a week ago. I'm sure that my dad will buy me another one. I mean, as only a six-year-old could do who's trusting in the parents. And so I went home that night and you guys could write the end of this story. I went home and I showed the old man the basketball and, and with expectation, I looked in his eyes and he said, hey, wow, bummer for you. And uh, he then said, before I could say anything, he said, maybe next year for your birthday, you could get another basketball. Exactly. I was like, next year? Next year, I don't want to wait till next year. And, and, and I just remember this disappointment flooding over my soul. It was the first experience I can remember where I had an expectation and it wasn't met and I was disappointed. What's yours? My guess is you have story upon story of that. And here's where it gets kind of serious, however. If disappointment only stopped at a benign misexpectation, which I just told you about, it would be palatable. But the reality is, and some of us know this only too well, is that disappointment has the power in its progression to spiral downward and spiral down fast. And here's exactly what happens. We have an unmet expectation and we're disappointed. And again, if it stopped there, we'd be fine. This is the basketball story. Unmet expectation, disappointment. Okay, we're okay, even though we're disappointed. The problem is, is that some disappointments are huge. Some disappointments are the great disappointment. And that leads to frustration, hurt, even confusion relationally and spiritually. And when that goes unchecked, and we're gonna show you how to check this here in a few minutes, but when that goes unchecked, it leads to discouragement and even disillusionment and eventually hopelessness. And that's where a lot of people are today. What started out as a disappointing experience has just run ramshod in our lives and has led us all the way to hopelessness. And here we sit today saying, boy, does disappointment stink. Truly, folks, it is a reality of life, something not to mess around with, because in the end, it can be a formidable battle within our soul. And I would put it right up there with the other things we're looking at in this series, things like fear and shame and anger and depression. Disappointment leads the way with those things. Now, let's spend the rest of our time talking more positively because when you think about it, and when you ask the question, well, what can I do to respond to disappointment? There are only really two clear choices. You're gonna like this, on how to combat or handle disappointment. 
It's what I'm going to call a defensive posture versus an offensive posture. Defensive versus offensive. And I'm going to argue today that one is much better than the other. So first, the one that I don't think is a great choice, the defensive posture. And I'm just going to warn you right now, it is a posture that the vast majority of people take today when they get too disappointed, when disappointment seems to beat them up. And the defensive posture says this, you want to not be disappointed anymore in the future? Then set your expectations low. In other words, if the bar is too high and you keep hitting it when you're trying to jump over it and you keep failing, then lower the bar. If you're disappointed and disappointment all goes back to expectations, then set them lower and you won't be disappointed. It's the way that a lot of people respond to disappointment in our fallen world. So let me give you some examples. When people have been through a terrible, terrible marriage breakdown, in which it was extremely painful, which I guess all of them are, there are some, if not many, who say, I'm never loving again. I am never going into that one again. I am never gonna trust my heart to somebody else again. They just lower the bar. Or I mentioned kids earlier. For people whose kids have let them down significantly in their lives, they just say, here's my response. I'm just not gonna expect much from them in the future. In other words, this kid can't hurt me anymore because I just don't have many expectations from my adult children. Or how about a job? For some of you entrepreneurs who have failed on a regular basis, you say, you know what? I'm throwing in the white towel. I'm just gonna basically set the bar lower. Mediocrity is gonna be the name of the game and I'm just gonna go with that. Or worse yet, how about God? God has let you down or seemingly let you down. And it's just gotten frustrating with him. And so you say, you know what? I'm just gonna settle for less in my spiritual life. Oh, I'll go to church. I'll sing a few songs. I'll hear a really scintillating and wonderful sermon by Pastor Jamie. But, but at the end of the day, I'm just not gonna expect much from God. And even today, you sit here or you're at home or at one of our other campuses and your expectations are low. It's a defense mechanism that you kick in when you're too disappointed. I get it. And it works. It actually does protect you from feeling too disappointed with your kids, your marriage, your job, your spiritual life. I mean, try it sometimes. It really is a good protection mechanism. Here's the problem. It also creates a tremendous amount of distance from everything and everyone around you. Amen. You're not close to your spouse. Your kids are pretty intuitive. <laughs> your boss at work knows exactly what's going on. And can you fool God? <laughs> of course not. And so though it might protect your soul for a little while, it's a far cry from the life that God wants for you or that he designed for you. And so if this doesn't appeal to you, this defensive posture, and it shouldn't, there is another choice that the Bible trumpets. And it's what I call an offensive posture because it takes the offense. It gets on the offense. And it's our main point today. And it's the only thing outside of maybe the definition that I need you to remember about disappointment. And it's this. And that is that if you dare to battle, the enemy of disappointment is hope. It's true. The enemy of disappointment is hope. Because you see hope like sun on a foggy day slowly but surely dissipates the fog of disappointment. 
If you want to go on the offensive, if you want to actually get somewhere in the disappointment you've experienced, then I'm telling you what you need to know, and this is the starting place, but it'll carry you all the way through, is that the sworn enemy of disappointment is hope. You know, I baited you earlier intentionally. Uh, some of you were paying attention. Remember earlier I mentioned a bunch of those Bible characters that experienced disappointment? And I told you that there's hardly anybody in the Bible that didn't experience disappointment. And I listed them, starting with Adam and Eve. Remember that? If you don't, I can do it again. Do you all remember that? Okay, good. And, and, and as I listed all those people who've experienced disappointment, I, I baited you by failing to mention that many, well, all of them were also offered hope by God. And that many of them that I listed took God up on his hope. We'll see how to do that here in a minute. And it turned the tide on their disappointment. In other words, I started with Adam and Eve. <laughs> Obviously, they were disappointed. They started this whole thing called sin and the fall and all of that. But then God gave them a, a little spit of hope in Genesis 3.15 when he said, someday I'm gonna bring a savior and he's gonna bruise you on the head and you're gonna bruise him on the heel. And they started to get hope. And then Noah was real disappointed. You'd be disappointed too if you saw all your friends and even some of your family die in a flood and have to go through all of that. But at the end of that, God said, hey, no, I'm gonna give you some hope. I'm never doing this again. I'm gonna give you a rainbow as a sign of that for the rest of your life. And then you read on and Moses is wandering in the desert. That's a big time disappointment. He thought he'd be going into the promised land in Israel that just couldn't keep their mouth shut. No offense to Israel, but back then as a nation, they just could not stop whining, the Bible says. God says, I've had enough. You're gonna wander in the desert till this generation dies for 40 years. And Moses is so disappointed. But then God gives them a, a pillar of fire by night and then a pillar of cloud by day and then manna to eat that they didn't even have to work for. They just trusted in. And Moses begins to get hope. And then you read on and you read about David who sinned with Bathsheba. That was a very disappointing time because he was embarrassed. He was ashamed. He was separated from God and he lost his son because that was the punishment that God brought. But then Nathan comes along, and basically Nathan says to him, God has forgiven you of your sin. It's okay. You're gonna create in you a clean heart, read Psalm 51. And then he even says, and you're gonna have another son, and he's gonna be named Solomon, and he's gonna be the smartest guy that ever walked this earth. So all of a sudden he went from disappointment to hope. I could go on and on. Jeremiah's walking through the destruction of Israel, and then he realizes that even though things look really bad, that as he writes in Lamentations 3, the Lord's great love is still with me and his compassions never fail. Great is your faithfulness. Probably the most inspiring guy to me in all of the Bible that experienced hope in the midst of just terrible, terrible disappointment is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul arguably led a very, very difficult life. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians is my new all-time favorite book in the Bible, uh, Paul the Apostle just starts off the whole book on a real downer. And he essentially says, you know what? I've had so much crud come at me in life that I don't even want to live anymore. He says, I was despairing even life. And then he goes on a few chapters later to embrace the hope that God gives him. Look at what he writes. This is so inspiring, at least to me. He says, we're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, meaning we don't get it. Things are confusing, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says, why? 
He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are also being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. I don't know about you, but this dude has got hope in the midst of the most trying and disappointed, disappointing times. Are you starting to see, guys, time and time again in the Bible, when people experience profound disappointment, their version of the great disappointment, which they did and we will, they also experience a life-changing experience or perspective-altering hope. They were offered hope and they grabbed it. And I know how some of you think, you're just coming to think, well, Jamie, you make it sound so good. I mean, I can tell you right now, I've read the Bible too, and not everybody in the Bible had that hope. And guess what? You're right. <laughs> See, here's what we learned today. God offers hope to everyone, including you. And he offered hope to every single Bible character I can find. And there were some who received it. We'll see how in a minute. And there were some that did not. And so as much as I give you that positive list of these people who experienced disappointment and received hope and that turned the tide, I also have a list of people that rejected the hope that was right in front of them. People like Cain and Pharaoh, King Saul, the rich young ruler, Judas Iscariot, Governor Pilate. <laughs> How about almost every one of the religious leaders of Jesus' day? The pastors, <laughs> they rejected the hope. All of them experienced their own great disappointment and they even rubbed shoulders with a God who loved them, but they never saw the hope that could have been theirs. You gotta wrestle with why, right? I mean, because this is relevant today. You got family members, you got friends, maybe even yourself, who, who like has experienced profound disappointment and you're kind of mired in it, you're stuck in it, and you got someone saying, well, there's hope right in front of you, and you see that hope, but some people aren't grabbing it. What's going on there? Why do some experience this amazing hope and others don't? And the answer is simple. And that is that there's some who refuse to believe, who refuse to embrace the promises of God that he reigns over their lives. They refuse to embrace the promises that he has showered upon them. In short, they reject the hope that's being offered them. I've given you this definition before, but you know, when people ask me what hope is, <laughs> I remember once I was, I was crossing over the border, I was preaching in Canada, and I was crossing over the border of the United States, and you know, they were being kind of tough on me, like they didn't believe I was really American, even though I had a passport and all that, and so you want to know why I was in Canada, why I'm coming back, and this was a few years ago, and I, and, and I, and I said, uh, well, I was, I was preaching, I was a preacher, and he was like, yeah, I've heard that before, and then he said, what'd you preach on? And I thought, hey, you asked, and so I said, I, I, <laughs> I said, well, let me tell you, I was at this church in Toronto, and I preached on hope. And all of a sudden, my wife, who's in the seat next to me, yells across me to this border guard. She yelled this. She said, and hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. And the guy said, just go. Get into that country. <laughs> see, that's a great definition. Hope is not mine. It's the Bible's. Hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances, the disappointment you have right now, to that which is unseen. You could, and you say, how can you see the unseen? Here's how hope works. Hope is God on the horizon. More specifically, it's his promises on the horizon, which we'll get to in just a minute here when we wrap up. And God has placed his promises for you 
smack dab on the horizon of your life. John Piper calls it future grace. It's there for the taking. And what hope does is that hope looks to the future and it doesn't see exactly how those promises are going to come true, how God's going to do this, how God's going to do that, but it hopes nonetheless, it believes nonetheless. That's why I say hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that or to him who is unseen. Probably the greatest proof text for hope or greatest Bible verse for hope is Romans 4 verse 18. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope, I love that. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. You're saying, what did he believe? (laughs) The promise of God. Do you remember the promise of God in Abraham's life? Did you guys go to Sunday school? But we tell the story to our kids all the time. Abraham is about 75 years old, his wife's 65. And God says to them, hey, guess what? Through your lineage, through your, your son, Israel is gonna be born as a nation and continue on. And of course they go, wait, wait, God. I'm 65, Sarah says. And Abraham says, I'm 75. And yet they say, well, this is God given the promise, so it must come true. And so 10 years later, they still don't have a kid. 20 years later, they still don't have a kid. Five years later, they still don't have a kid. And now Abraham's 100 and Sarah's 90. I looked it up in the Guinness World Book of Records. I checked it again between services here because people always push back on me. The oldest person, according to Guinness World Book of Records, to give a natural birth in the whole history of the world that we know of is 59 years old. I know, ladies, I wouldn't want to do that either, but 59 years old. It's the oldest lady to give birth. There is some lady in India who claimed to give birth recently at 74 uh, by in vitro fertilization, but just suffice it to say, Sarah didn't have that option. And she was 90. And no MRIs, no universal health care, none of that stuff. And and they basically said, how in the world is God going to come through with that one? But here's what Abraham did. Against all hope, because everybody else said it can't happen, Abraham in hope believed. He embraced the promise of God. And we all know the ending to this story, spoiler alert, (laughs) is that a 90-year-old woman gave birth to a son who became... Isaac, that's what they named him, and would now lead Israel. Isaac in the Hebrew, some of you know this, means laughter. Because when Sarah first heard from Abraham (laughs) that she was going to have a kid, and that was when she was only like 65, she started laughing and saying, what have you been smoking, Abraham? (laughs) And God always has the last laugh. So they named their son Laughter as a constant reminder that God's promises can be banked on. See, the secret to dealing with life's disappointments is to grab onto hope. And hope is attained, don't hear anything else, through, the faith, through faith in the promises of God. And once you and I get this, it leaves only one very important question that we have to deal with, and then we'll be out of here in a few minutes. But it's a very important question. And that is, what is it that God has promised to me when I'm at that height of disappointment in life? And that's a very important question. Because there is some debate on that today. If you listen to certain TV preachers or maybe some other preachers, man, they they make it sound like God's going to do anything and everything you ask. You ever notice that? That if you just have enough faith, God's going to do this, he's going to do that. And and the problem is, is that that's not entirely biblical. So what does the Bible actually say about God and his promises and what he will do for you and me in the midst of our disappointment when we dare to trust him and and take this offensive posture. 
I'm going to give it to you right now. And this is good. This is what God has promised to you and me as I have read the Bible over the years and kind of put it into a little Cliff Notes version right here. And that is that the Bible says sometimes he's going to give you deliverance. Always he's going to give you his presence. And eventually he's going to give you heaven. I'm telling you, this is what you and I should be banking on. That when we trust in God in the midst of the great disappointments of our life, here's what's on the horizon. Here's what we're hoping for. Sometimes he'll deliver you. Always, if you trust him, he'll give you his presence. And eventually, you're going to get heaven. Notice with me first that sometimes he delivers us. Don't overlook that. You know, in a church like Scottsdale Bible, not being a, you know, a, a, a very charismatic or Pentecostal type church in our history, we tend to think, well, does God really do miracles? Does he really deliver us, you know, in profound ways today? What's the answer to that? Yes, he does. And we see him do that all the time around here. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes he delivers us. Here's a great Bible verse for this one. Remember I mentioned Paul the Apostle and how he, he started off 2 Corinthians by saying, I basically want to die. Look at what he writes next in the next verses after he says that. He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So he basically says, look, all these things are happening to us so that we would trust God and stop trusting in ourselves. And then he says, who delivered us from so great a peril of death? Translated, I'm not dead yet. And he will deliver us, he on whom we have set our, say this word with me, hope, and he will yet deliver us. And Paul the Apostle would go on to write about literally dozens, if not hundreds of times, when God delivered him in the most difficult, arduous, and disappointing circumstances. Why? Because sometimes God delivers. And again, don't listen to people who tell you, well, if you just have enough faith, then he all the time will deliver. That's not true. In fact, as we read on in the book of 2 Corinthians, you get to chapter 12, and Paul the Apostle in verses 7 through 10 says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this away from me. Three times I trusted him with everything in me to deliver me, and God said, no, because I got you where I want you right now, and my power is going to be made perfect in your weakness. So there are times that God says, I got something better for you than even the deliverance you want. And you're saying, what could that be? Wow, look at this. And that is, give me another click here, his presence. See, I think Christians today, man, we undersell the presence of God. You ever notice that? Like, like sometimes when I say to people, well, I don't know if God's going to save your marriage. I don't know if he's going to change all your kids. I don't know if he's going to take away all your bad emotions. I don't know if he's going to save you financially. But I do know this. He is with you in the battle. They look, with me like, they look at me like big whip. You know, well, yeah, I know he's with me, but so what? I sit there and go, so what? The God of the universe who loves you and is your all in all says, even though you might not get the deliverance you want, you got me. And then he asks you, am I enough? And we almost say to him, no. Come on, people. <laughs> if you're in a great marriage and your spouse won't do what you want, which, by the way, is a definition of a good marriage. <laughs> if, if, if that happens to you as it happens to me, but then my dear wife looks at me and says, but she got me. What's my answer to that? It's like, thank you, honey. Yes, I got you. And at the end of the day, it should be enough. Now imagine that with God. Because here's the promise. Again, you're banking on the promises of God. Here's what he said to you. 
Jesus says, some of Jesus' very last words, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. His presence is always there. And here's the point, is that when he chooses to not deliver you, his presence is enough. But you gotta believe that. You gotta bank on that. You need to trust him. And then as you do those two things, sometimes deliverance, always presence, he says there's a third thing you need to be banking on, and that is eventually you're gonna get to heaven. And have you ever read what the Bible says about heaven? I love when people say to me, well, the Bible doesn't talk much about heaven. What Bible are you reading? It says no more tears, a resurrection body that is perfect and will never decay. You know what I read in that? There's not gonna be fitness clubs in heaven. Did you know that? There's no diets in heaven, nothing like that. In heaven, we're all gonna have perfect bodies in the absolute felt presence of the Lord for all of eternity. Now that seems like something you wanna look forward to, amen? Yeah. And, and, and look at how Jesus said, he said, in my father's house are many dwelling places, meaning many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I'm going there to prepare a room for you. And if I go and prepare a room for you, then I'm gonna come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you can be also. Paul the apostle believed this so much that he said, if we have hoped in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. <laughs> He's essentially saying, just don't pin your, your, your hope in the midst of your disappointment, only on deliverance or even presence, but pin it also in heaven. You know, our uh, culture right now, rightly so, is um, focusing a lot on racial unity. As we look at the history of African-Americans in, in America and many other minorities, but especially African-Americans, one of the things that most culture watchers are just blown away with is that as a, a group of people, many of them, even in the most difficult, terrible circumstances, they longed for eternity. They longed for heaven. I have a book in my office called Conversations with God, which is a conglomeration of African-American prayers from a couple hundred years ago. And in the midst of some of the worst circumstances where they probably knew they weren't gonna get delivered this side of heaven, the hope that they had of heaven and of eternity just brings tears to your eyes. And that's not a pipe dream. That's not wishful thinking. That was real to them. Is it real to you? Because that's what biblical people do. They realize that even though this life can stink at times, heaven won't. And it's part of my hope. Sometimes deliverance, always presence. Eventually, you're gonna get heaven. You gotta believe, you gotta hang in there. I'm gonna close with an illustration here that I, I think will be somewhat meaningful to you. I'm putting a pillow here because I'm gonna kneel and my knees are shot. Years ago, we had a guy about my age preach here. His name was Carl and he had done the Iditarod up in Alaska. The guy was in impeccable shape. And at one point he got down on his knees in the stage and I, I just went, I, ouch, that like, looked like it hurt. And then he did something I, I never thought a 50 year old guy could do. He got up off his knees without any help at all. And I thought that'll never be me. So here we go. Sometimes in life, disappointment can hit you so hard, and some of you have been there, that you're just down on one knee. You're hit really hard. It's just knocked the wind out of you. Some of you are there right now, and it's just taken all out of you, and you're just down on one knee, and you're down for the count. And what a defensive posture says is that when you're down on one knee, man, muster up your reserves, get up, stay low, because you want to set your expectations low, and live to fight another day. 
That's kind of what we're told to do in the world around us today. You're down on one knee, just get up, get back on your horse, but this time just sort of stay low, fly under the radar, and hopefully you won't land too hard. The problem is, is that some of us have found, is that uh, you're going to be on one knee again soon. <laughs> because life is hard, and it's difficult, and it's full of disappointments, if not great disappointments. So many people live like this. Here's the image. They're, they're, they're down on one knee, they get up. They're down on one knee, they get up. They're down on one knee, and they get up. And, and just live life like that. You know people like this. Maybe it's even you. Here's what you're hearing God tell you today. He says, don't just keep getting up and trying to fight on your own. He says, next time you're down on one knee, just drop the other one. Just drop the other knee. And he says, now I got you where I want you. <laughs> because you've stopped fighting. You've stopped trying this defensive posture. Just get down on the other knee. Submit to me. And watch your hope rise. Believe in me and realize that I just might deliver you. If I don't, you got my presence and heaven's waiting for you. And those three things combined on bended knees will give you hope. And as the Bible says, his hope never disappoints. Don't you love that? His hope never disappoints. So with me still on two knees, why don't you guys bow your heads right now and let's pray. God, what a great posture to end our time together on, to be on bended knee before you as both a vision and an image of where our lives need to be in the midst of disappointment. And God, as we started off today, there's not one of us here or at Cactus Northridge Chapel or online that has not experienced or right now is not experiencing a great disappointment. It's part and parcel of living in this fallen world. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there's also not one of us here today that doesn't want to do something about it. And what we've learned today, Lord, is it's either defense or offense. And Lord, for many of us, we're going to choose the offense because we want hope. And so, Lord, understanding that hope looks to the horizon and banks on your promises, we claim those right now. And Lord, we know that in your promises, there could be deliverance. We know there is presence and eventually eternity. And so, Lord, as we place our hope on your promises, we place our faith on your promises, God, fill us up with the hope that slowly but surely puts to death our disappointment. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you bring us to our knees in a good way that we might trust in you. And we pray these things only and always in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen.